Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm actually very, very excited about who we have today as a guest because I think that building a, a really meaningful company is tough, but he actually has uh, really been the co-founder behind two really big, big success stories. So without further ado, Jeffrey Rader, welcome here to the uh, Dealmaker Show today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So let's say, let's go a little bit back through uh, through memory lane. So before you actually um, really got into entrepreneurship, you actually lifted indirectly via your parents because your parents were also entrepreneurs. Is that right? That's right. My mom was an entrepreneur um, and uh, she started a loyalty marketing company when I was 11. um, And I lived through through the experience with her of starting a company um, and seeing the the good, the great times and, and the hard times. Uh, and that initially made me think I didn't want to do anything entrepreneurial just because I saw what a, um, what a challenging journey it can be. Yeah. So, so was that the, the main reason uh, you were saying why, why you didn't want to go at it right away? And perhaps you did a little bit of corporate America. Yeah. Well, I sort of looked at her experience. I was like, wow, this is really hard. Um, there must be a, a more stable and, um, less stressful way to, uh, to go about, um, a career. Uh, um, uh, but then, um, I think what I probably underestimated was, um, how, um, rewarding it can be to hopefully build a company that has positive impact and, um, and how just engaging and enthralling it is to be so passionate about an idea that, that all you want to do is spend time working on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then basically you graduated from, from Johns Hopkins university and they right out, right out of uh, that experience there of studying you, you actually go in and 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 start at Bain, right? So, but yeah. but 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 before we go into Bain, why why did you decide to do international studies? Yeah, I thought I really wanted to try to have impact in the world, um, and I thought international affairs was an interesting background to do that. Um, so you got to learn about economics and politics, um, not only in the U.S. but around the world, and sort of the forces that impact world affairs more broadly. I ended up doing a master's in international affairs too because I was so interested in it. And for a while, I thought that you know my career might take me to the public sector and work at the State Department or something. Um, and and then I sort of realized that you know what motivated me most was the chance to have impact 
quickly in a career and that working at a place like Bain um, could enable me to do that probably in a differential way than some of the opportunities I saw sort of in the DC policy community. Some of the actually, actually some of the best entrepreneurs that I've seen are, are those that have done some consulting in the past, either Bain or, or McKinsey. So what, what did you learn here? I, I think Bain is an incredible place. And I think I learned a few things. One, um, I think learned how to kind of break down really complex problems into their subcomponent pieces and then break those down again, which can obviously be really helpful um, in an entrepreneurial endeavor. You know, starting a company just seems so big and hard if you think about it as one problem. But when you break it down to a hundred problems and then break those problems down further, it can be just become a lot more manageable. And so we learned to do that at Bain. Um, I think it gave me a good perspective on how different businesses are run um, and how different markets function. And I think that was really helpful um, just to sort of see patterns between different businesses and different industries. Um, and uh, and I met amazing people at Bain. So I met my Harry's co-founder uh, at Bain, which is probably the most important thing that, that Bain offered was just the chance to to get to work with such incredible people um, and learn from them and spend time with them. Absolutely. And in terms of patterns, would you mind sharing some of those patterns that, that you were able to recognize, whether on, on markets or on companies that, that were doing really good stuff? Yeah, I, I felt like the companies that we were working with that um, were most successful were those that had you know, a real reason to exist um, and a real sort of set of differentiating characteristics or beliefs um, in their business models um, that enabled them to serve people in a better way somehow. And I don't think I can go into specifics um, because Bain doesn't disclose work that they do, but it was really clear to me that there were just some really great businesses out there that were offering people what they wanted um, in a highly compelling way and then innovating for people to continue to sort of get better and better. I had a ton of admiration for those companies. Um, and then I think there were others which just felt like they hadn't quite found their way and therefore, you know, it seemed like it was just harder for them, like it was more challenging. Um, so I think that that's one thing. I think the second thing about Bain that I learned was, um, at least in kind of businesses that served customers directly, and we worked with a bunch, um, that the best ones seemed to be really, really focused on who the customer was. and how they what they wanted and how the business could help to improve their experience in some way shape or form um and i think got a felt like i got a pretty deep appreciation for for people um and for what they valued um and those i think were some of the most exciting and rewarding opportunities and that can exist across sectors it can exist within consumer or healthcare um or professional services it, it can be anywhere, but I think if you think about kind of the end consumer of anything that you're going to make as a person and trying to be deeply empathetic with who that person is and how you can do better for them, I think it just leads to a lot of exciting opportunities. So then and I why, think real impact too. And, and, and why, uh, Jeff, why did you decide to go from consulting to the more the investment side with Charles Mack? Yeah. So I'd had a couple of friends who had worked at Bain, um, who'd gone to work in investing and their pitch to me, which was an exciting pitch at the time. I was only a couple of years out of school is 
why don't you come learn about this? It's an industry that not many people understand. And so at least it'll be a good learning experience for you. And what we like about it is rather than just getting to consult to companies and make strategic recommendations for them that they can choose to follow or not, we end up sort of putting our money where our mouth is and buy, trying to buy these companies that we think um, are in strong strategic positions and then work with them at the board level um, to improve performance and drive growth. And so you can just have more direct impact. You're one step closer to where those decisions are being made. And that sounded really exciting to me, um, the idea. And then I went and met people, um, ended up working at a fund called Charles Bank. And I went and met the people there and I just really liked them. And, you know, I spent a few days with the, the people and in a few days um, there, you can meet the entire team. And so I had the opportunity to do that. And um, the folks I met, um, I thought were um, incredibly smart and humble and thoughtful and people that I like to work with and that I could learn from. Uh, and so that sort of drove my decision to to leave and to, to try to go work in investing and try to understand kind of what, what that was like and hopefully have another interesting learning experience early in my career. And talking about boards, Jeff, what, uh, I mean, you had here the experience of really understanding, you know, like working at a strategic level and, and seeing the dynamics of, of, of boards of successful companies. What do you think makes a board effective? Yeah. So I think there's a couple things. One, I think there's a very clear line between the board and management that's really important not to cross or to be respectful of. I think, you know, board's ultimate job is to help management set the strategic direction of the company and then hold them accountable for the execution against that direction. And if boards start to sort of meddle in the day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week or even, you know, year-to-year -year activities of a company and not hold management accountable for executing, then you end up with this really interesting issue around, well, whose job was it? Was it the board's job? Did they do well or do not well? Or was it the management's job? Did they do well or not well? And I think, you know, the best board dynamics that I I witnessed, and I think the Charles Bank folks were exceptionally thoughtful about this, were, were those in which the board could push management thinking, have a really interesting set of strategic perspectives, get to see a bunch of different businesses and have a sense for what's going on in the world and bring that information to a conversation to help management think through challenging crossroads. I could go left, I could go right, which way should I go? But at the end of the day, hold management accountable for a lot of the ultimate decisions and for execution against those decisions. And I think in situations where I've seen there be problems at the board level, I think sometimes board members think that, that they should drive some of the execution and start to get involved personally. And then it's just attributions and just complicated, both on the positive and the negative, who's really running the company. And so I think that's a really important dynamic. I think the second thing that's helpful is just having a diverse set of perspectives in a board. And so, you know, when we were on the boards of Charles Bank companies, oftentimes we'd have outside directors who just had different perspectives than the folks at Charles Bank. Um, I think if everyone's just thinking the same way, oftentimes you don't get to the best place. Um, and you know, now that Harry's as a company is growing, we're thinking a lot about how to evolve our board. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about are what are the sort of diverse set of experiences and perspectives um, that we want um, to help us continue to, to drive the company forward strategically. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So then, so then at what point do you decide, you know, this is interesting, but I got to go back to school, to business school? Um, it was a pretty logical path for me to sort of spend a couple of years at Charles Bank and go back to business school. Um, 
that's something that many folks there did. Uh, and so it wasn't like a huge kind of decision to, to do that. Um, you know, at the time I thought I may want to work at Charles bank for a long time. And so having another kind of professional quasi professional experience and going back to business school was something that I just thought would be interesting for me personally, probably helpful for me to get another set of ideas from new people professionally. Um, and then I kind of go back to Charles bank afterwards to continue to, to work there. Um, and they were really supportive of me going. Um, and, um, and so I went to, to business school at Wharton. It was an amazing experience for me. I think one that, that changed my life. I can imagine. I can imagine. And, and Wharton, I mean, there's like a lot of businesses that come out of it. I, I actually go and guest lecture there with Professor Wright. And, and I love the, the energy and how people are around brainstorming. But one of the, one of the big ideas it actually happened there with you and, and with three other folks. So how did the, uh, the idea of Warby Parker come together? Yep. So I was um, sitting after class uh, with my good friend and um, eventual Warby Parker co-founder, Neil. Uh, another one of our co-founders came up to the two of us and said, hey, what do you think of selling glasses online? Um, his name was Dave and our fourth co-founder, Andy, and he were close and were working together on the same learning team at Wharton. Um, and I think Andy had had the idea of coming to school and, and had mentioned it to Dave. And I think Dave had also had similar issues with, with his own glasses. And, you know, he mentioned this to us and at the time I had a $500 pair of glasses where my prescription had changed multiple times, but I hadn't changed my glasses. It felt like there was a pain point for me and an opportunity to do it better in the world. And so, um, when Dave mentioned the idea to me, I got really excited about it and said, you know, I'd love a better pair of glasses. These seem super expensive. Neil had worked in the eyewear industry before school um, and had said, hey, like glasses don't have to cost $500. I've been to the place where they're made. They're so expensive because these big companies essentially own the entire market and they charge a big markup between the cost to make the products and the cost that they're sold for. And so, Jeff, you could get a great pair of glasses that you really liked for a lot less. Um, and you should be able to have that. And that was a really, I think, interesting conversation for me. Um, after the conversation, I went home, I couldn't sleep that night. Uh, and then I emailed, um, Neil and Dave at like, you know, 1am and I was like, Hey guys, I can't stop thinking about this. This is a really interesting idea. Um, I think we should at least consider it. Um, and I think, uh, one of them emailed me right back and said, I can't sleep either. I'm super excited. I think all of us felt like there was just an exciting opportunity to do something together. We've all, we were close friends. And so it was fun to get to kind of come together with folks that you know, we were tight with um, personally and try to do something that hopefully had impact far beyond, you know, the four of us. And the, uh, and the four of you, did you all have different backgrounds and different things to add to the table or, or how do you guys really divide and conquer? Yeah. So I think you look, if you looked at us on paper, we weren't all that diverse. Dave had worked at Bain and in finance, just like me. Andy was an investment banker. Neil had worked at a nonprofit and had some experience in the IOR industry, which was sort of on paper complimentary. But then I think if you looked at us all as people, I think we're really different. Um, and I think have different ideas and perspectives um, and, um, and we're able, I think, to figure out um, what our different ideas and perspectives were, but also start to develop a shared understanding and vision for what we wanted this to be. And I think it was sort of in the magic of that process that, you know, Warby Parker was, was formed. 
So how long did it take from from that day where you couldn't sleep until you guys actually turned the switch on the yeah. launch? So that day where I couldn't sleep was in late 2011. Um, and we, sorry, I take that back. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm getting my dates wrong. That was Harry's. That, was that day when I couldn't sleep was late yeah. 2008. And we ended up launching Warby Parker in early 2010. So uh, a little over a year. Got it. And And when you launched... Did you automatically knew that you had product market fit or there were certain tweaks that needed to happen to get there? No, it happened very quickly. We knew we had product market fit very quickly. So we launched, um, turned the website on. I think I stayed up all night the night before with our, we had one outsourced web developer who's a great guy living in Canada. And we stayed up all night the night before getting the site ready. We turned it on. Uh, And the reason that we had to turn it on on a specific day is because we heard that GQ was writing an article about eyewear, and they were including Warby Parker in the article. Um, and so um, we turned it on. GQ hit newsstands. We went and picked up a copy, and then we went to class. Uh, and then afterwards, Vogue wrote an article about us, and then Daily Candy, and all of a sudden, we were having this great press. And after the press started to hit, we just had a, a deluge of orders. Um, and we hit our first year sales plan in our first month. We sold out of most of our styles. Um, and it very quickly flipped from, we have this brand, is anyone going to want to buy it to, um, oh my God, how do we deal with all these customers and how do we ensure that they have a great experience with us, which was just so deeply important to us personally and to the success of the brand. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, so here you are in this rocket ship, right? In, in 2009 and then, and then all of a sudden you decide to, to go back to corporate America. Why? Yeah. So before I'd gone to business school, uh, I had worked at Charles Bank and they had given me the opportunity to come back after school. And at the time, I felt like it was a great opportunity. I loved the people there. Um, I enjoyed the work I was doing. And so I took the opportunity. Um, And I always thought that I was going to go back to Charles Bank and work in investing, regardless of of what was going to happen at Warby Parker. Warby Parker was this amazing thing I got to to work on while I was in school that started as a project with my good friends and ended up being so much more. But it was really hard for me, I think, to get any perspective on that while I was in the middle of it. Uh, And so um, at the end of school, you know, I continued to work on Warby Parker. And then one day I was just like, oh, I've got to go back to my my full-time job. Um, And uh, I left um, and spent a lot of time then still working on Warby Parker. It was very hard for me to let it go. Um, and trying to spend a lot of time with my co-founders thinking about how we continue to build the company and the team, you know, around them to enable them to be successful. And they were amazing, amazing founders and doing a great job. And so, um, I had the kind of fortune of getting to continue to work with them, hopefully on some of the issues that, um, could continue to, to, to make the business, um, work. Yeah. Because you stayed at the, at the board, right? Yeah. So I stayed on the board at Warby Parker. I'm still on the board at Warby Parker. Um, and um, yeah, it's something that uh, I love deeply. Um, I care a ton about the company. I care a ton about the folks that, that I got to start the company with um, and would always do anything for, for Warby Parker. And, and I've always felt that way. Um, and so, you know, for me, um, it was amazing to get to, to stay involved. And I think as I did stay involved, I started to get a pretty good A-B test um, for what I liked. And, um, you know, I think doing something entrepreneurial was just something that I was really, really passionate about. Uh, and so, um, 
So I think having the experience of doing Warby Parker while also working in investing was just a good uh, sort of moment for me to be able to actually get some time to reflect. Um, and uh, I think opened my eyes to the fact that I would want to do something entrepreneurial again someday. Um, and then Andy called me for the idea with the idea for Harry's and, and that became the thing. That's amazing. And for the people that are listening, how big is say Warby Parker today? Um, I think we have a few thousand employees um, total. Um, we have now almost a hundred stores um, and then obviously I started online and um, have continued to grow there. We're, we're in the U S and in Canada. Uh, and um, it's been amazing just to sort of see the, the overall growth of the company. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, the company has also reportedly uh, raised uh, close to 300 million and it's closer to a 2 billion valuation. So that's uh, that's really impressive. So now let's talk about a little bit about Harry's. Uh, you go back to corporate America, you're in Charles Bank, and then all of a sudden, after being a couple of years there, you receive a call from your now co-founder. What, what happened? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, Andy and I um, met at Bain uh, and were had been very close friends um, and kind of stayed close through my experience building Warby Parker. Um, and you know, he called me one day um, and said, hey, I just had a bad experience. I went to a drugstore. I waited for 10 minutes for someone to unlock the razor case. I paid $25 for four razor blades and some shaving cream. Um, it's not the fact that they're actually cost $25 that's upsetting me, but I know that they don't cost nearly that much to make. And I feel like I'm getting taken advantage of, uh, and you know, I'm looking at my bag. There's a picture of a razor flying over the moon. I don't understand why it has to be that way. Um, could you take some of what you guys learned at Warby Parker and do it better here? Um, and I think that, uh, idea was really exciting for me. Um, the idea that, um, that we could do it better for, ourselves first, but then for lots of, of other guys, um, and felt like we could build a brand that was warm and relatable and approachable to guys that gave them great products at fair value, um, that delivered it to them, um, in different and unique ways and ways that hopefully would make the purchase experience more convenient and offer them education, um, if, and where it was helpful. Uh, and so, um, I got super excited about that idea with Andy and off we went to, to start to work on Harry's. So how long did it take from that call until you actually, you know, made the decision to, to go at it? So uh, that, that call was in late 2011. Um, the next thing we had to do is figure out, well, how we were going to make great products. And that journey took us to Germany, uh, where um, we found, you know, an amazing manufacturer uh, of razor blades, which was incredibly important. And then it took us a while to develop a partnership with them uh, by which we could make custom products for Harry's. Uh, and try to deliver just exceptional quality products that were um, what our customers wanted. Um, they'd never been in the U.S. before, and so we had to work with them on that. Uh, and that took about nine months. Uh, and then in sort of mid-2012, um, we signed a partnership with them, went back, raised some capital, and at that point, you know, I said, okay, this is this is going to be the next thing that, that I go work on. And so I... Um, I stepped down from Charles Bank full time and I was pretty open with them about uh, my sort of longer term aspirations and um, went to start to work on Harry's. And was there like a decision that you made personally? Because you had this background with uh, growing with your with your parents as entrepreneurs and 
yeah. and you saw the highs and, and the lows, but was there like a breakthrough moment for you where you said, you know what, I'm actually going at it and I don't care about corporate America. This is my life. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that was, maybe there are two anecdotes that might just be interesting in the context of kind of what motivated me. The first thing is the thing that I think I enjoyed most during my time working in investing was meeting other um, founders, entrepreneurs of companies. And it was really cool. I got to go fly to wherever they were, sit down with them for a day and learn about all the decisions that they made in building their business. Well, maybe not all, but a lot of the key important decisions, how they run their company and how they think about its future growth opportunities and what that means financially. And like, those were amazing conversations. I just left inspired and excited about the potential to work with them. And so that was one, I think, important factor. And then I was also having a lot of the same conversations with my co-founders at Warby Parker. You know, I'd have breakfast with them and we'd walk back to the Warby Parker office and then I'd go up to, you know, take the subway up to Midtown and work in investing all day and then come back to Warby Parker after work. And I just felt like, that that was an experience that I wanted. Um, and, you know, thankfully Warby Parker had traction in the market and was working and growing. And I saw the impact we were having and I just wanted the same experience for, for myself um, that I'd had at Warby Parker and that my co-founders were having as they were building the business. And so um, I think that was a very personal thing. And I think at the end of the day, you spend so much time working, you've got to do things that you're just incredibly passionate about. And I think I've always probably been passionate about building things and creating things. Um, and while investing was a great experience for me and I love the people, um, I'm probably just more passionate about doing things that that are operational and, um, and within a company. Um, and I think um, Warby Parker certainly taught me that. I think my experiences in Charles Bank reflecting on them helped to reinforce it for me. Uh, and then, you know, when Andy called me with the idea, I was just so excited about it. It's like what I felt like I had to go do. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I hear you. And and why did you and Andy decide to go with the co-founder, co-CEO structure? You know, we've always been really good friends. Uh, and we felt like um, we wanted to go into this as partners. Uh, I'd seen it work well with my co-founders at Warby Parker. And, um, and I sort of recognized that starting a company while an amazing experience is a lonely, difficult one. And to have a co-founder who you can share it with is really helpful. Um, they're really the only one who sort of is in it with you to the extent that um, that you are. And so uh, I always sort of felt like having um, a partner um, would be amazing. And Andy and I you know, have been good friends for a long time. We literally wrote each other's business school recommendations about and in it we both talked about the fact that you know if either of us asked the other one to start a business we'd drop everything that we were doing and go do it together um and so um i think we uh came at it with a deep level of mutual respect and understanding um and i think always thought about doing it together and doing it as sort of equal partners just felt great to both of us makes sense so what ended up being the um the business model so that the people that are listening really understand yeah. yeah. So I think our Harry's business model has grown and evolved over time. You know, we started Harry's as a brand first and foremost. And I think a brand that was rooted in the idea of trying to deliver a better experience for guys around shaving, um, but recognizing that there was a bunch of things around sort of 
men's personal care, all the things that guys do to get ready in the morning that we also felt like we could make better. Um, and, you know, kind of it started with, hey, well, what can we do to make this better for ourselves personally? And Andy was distressed at the drugstore. I think lots of guys felt like the big brands were taking advantage of them and not delivering them the products that they want, not innovating in ways that are actually good for them, just raising prices. And so we felt like we could do it differently and better and build a brand that was warm and relatable, there for guys, um, and sort of try to do that by not putting on airs, by just kind of being ourselves, saying, listen, we're not shaving experts. We're guys just like you who wanted a better experience ourselves, and so we're going to try to do it for ourselves and, and for guys everywhere. Um, you know, As I mentioned, we tried to make the best possible products we could, and I think that's really been something that's permeated our culture at Harry's. You know, we ended up buying our razor factory in Germany when we were a little less than a year old because we felt like quality was so important. And we've invested tens of millions, if not over $100 million in the factory and improving every little piece of the products that we make and growing capacity um, and building the team um, and continuing to try to do what's right for the people there. Uh, and so that's been an important part of our journey. And it's not just our razor products. We built a big team of amazing uh, people um, who do everything from formulate um, each of our, we call them soft products, but face wash or face lotion or shave gel, or now we're, we make body wash um, to teams that deeply try to understand guys and what they need and, um, and get to know them um, in a deep way, our customers and guys everywhere to try to just do what's best for them. Um, I think that's been an important um, sort of driver of our philosophy as a company. Um, we started selling online because we felt like we could get to know um, our customers better. Um, and I think that's been an, an amazing thing for us. We've had over 2 million conversations with our customers in CX. Um, the number one root cause of conversations is customer love. So we have lots of people just writing to us telling us that they're happy with their products. But then we try to understand why. What, what do you like about them and, and how can we do more? And when people are unhappy. And of course, that happens. We also try to understand that. And figure out how we can make their individual experiences better, but also use that as learning um, to, to make our products and experiences better for, for more people. Um, as we grew, we realized that you know, lots of our customers um, also wanted to find Harry's at retail. And as a brand that was customer-centric, we, we wanted to be there for them. And so um, we ended up um, signing a partnership with Target, uh, which we launched in 2016, um, which has been a great um, thing for our business and I think for our customers. Um, I think we've been blown away by the impact we've been able to have there um, in kind of changing the, the dynamics of the category and hopefully giving their guests um, another option that they would really want. Um, you know, from there, we've expanded retail to Walmart, which we launched last year. It's also been a really great partnership for us. Um, you know, 150 million people a week go to Walmart. Um, and so um, we felt like we should be there for them. Um, and, you know, we're very much aligned with the team at Walmart around how to deliver them a great experience um, around our brand and, um, and deliver them great value in, in our products. And we'll continue to expand from there um, to new products and new categories, potentially to new geographies. But I think always trying to sort of keep the North Star of, of our customer and trying to kind of create products and experiences that, that they like more and that somehow kind of make their daily lives a little bit better. Well, that's that's really amazing, and and one thing that I also found really incredible is how well you guys capitalized the business from very very early on. I mean, rather than than really uh, waiting to turn the switch on and see what 
things would look like. Like, for example, on Warby Parker, I know that you guys were running out of stock very quickly and then you had to wait for that to really fill those orders. You, you actually raise money before launching the product. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, we raised a seed round of capital before we launched the brand. That's amazing. And in total, uh, Jeff, how much capital have you guys raised to date? So I think at Warby Parker, I'm sorry, oh, I think it Harry's, I think at Harry's we've raised close to $400 million in equity and debt capital. Got it. Uh, really, really cool. So, yeah. so then I, I understand that you guys very recently launched Harry's Labs. What is yeah. Harry's Labs about? Yeah, so Harry's Labs is an organization um, that's focused on building, incubating, and helping to scale new brands in CPG, leveraging all of the infrastructure capabilities, relationships that we've built so far at Harry's. And so if you take a step back, um, we think that there's an amazing opportunity to launch new brands in CPG. And if you kind of look at CPG, it's a trillion dollars of market cap dominated by you know a handful of large companies. They make really healthy gross margins and the industry doesn't grow. And if then you click down a level, you know, it's dominated by a bunch of brands across all of these categories that largely sit on retail shelves and are not bad brands. We've got a ton of respect for the brands that have been built, but maybe aren't our brands or our children's brands, but our parents' brands or our grandparents' brands. And I think that there's an opportunity to build modern brands that people just have more affinity with that solve sort of emerging customer needs to interact with customers across multiple channels. And you know, we think lots of people will continue to buy retail and it's important to be there. But you know, direct to consumer has also been an amazing channel for us to continue to grow at Harry's. Um, and by doing so, um, to um, try to give people just better and better experiences across all of the categories in, in CPG. And we think of those as everything from beauty to personal care, health and wellness, home, baby, pets. Um, so a pretty wide variety of things. And I mean, I think the things that we've learned at Harry's, you know, can hopefully be helpful to a bunch of brands in these situations. And that starts with how do you understand your customer deeply and try to build brands that are highly resonant? How do you sort of go to market in a way that maximizes the impact that you're going to have on them? Starting, I think, direct to consumer and building a really sophisticated and robust direct to consumer experience getting all the data you can on consumers to actually understand what their behaviors are to serve them better. Built a ton of infrastructure at Harry's that has powered the Harry's brand in that way that we can apply to other brands. Um, thinking about if and how and where it may make sense to expand into retail and how to do that in a way that also is impactful. Leveraging lots of the relationships we've built there and, and the know-how that we've got. Um, and um, and then kind of trying to hire and build, you know, world-class organizations and do so in a way that's highly entrepreneurial. Um, you know, we sort of, similar to the comments I made around great board governance, I think we believe that um, entrepreneurs need to be able to make all the decisions that, that they need to make to be able to be really close to the customers to drive businesses forward. And so we're committed to creating an amazing operating ecosystem around these businesses, you know, help to take a lot of the hard stuff <laughs> off of people's plates, but then give them the opportunity to really drive the business forward in a way that they think is good from a product perspective and a customer perspective. Um, and that I think is the part of the entrepreneurial journey that at least I've, I felt to be most rewarding. So, really? um, so that's kind of what we're working on. And you guys definitely have the um, the size and resources to really to really make an impact. So how how big are are, are you guys today? How big is Harry's? Um, so Harry's, from a people perspective, is almost a thousand people. Um, so we have about three hundred and fifty people in New York. 
um, about 30 people in the UK and then um, a little over 500 in Germany. So our team has grown a lot. Um, and um, it's been amazing to kind of see our, our business grow, you know, in lockstep or, or beyond sometimes. Um, and we're always thinking about, hey, how can we you know, build better capabilities that can support both the Harry's brand and now in this new world, more brands over time. That's really fantastic. And and let me ask you this, because this is a question that I, I typically ask the guests that we have on the on the show. I mean, you've been exposed here to to two incredible rocket ships. I mean, Harry's and, and then also Warby Parker. So I guess knowing what you know now, and, and this is obviously really, really tough or impossible, but if you had the opportunity to to talk to your younger self, Jeff, and, and, and give you one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? I think to myself, um, it would probably be to really deeply understand the customer and people and just do what's right for them. Um, I think sometimes situations, companies, and I think we've fallen prey to this, can say, hey, this is going to be cool for the brand, or I've seen these three other companies do this, so it would be cool for us. Or, you know, maybe it's the right business decision as opposed to like, is my customer going to like this more? Am I going to make their life better somehow? And every time we do something that might not make the customer's life better, I think we find that we sort of swim against the current. And every time we make the customer's life better, we swim with the current in a, in a material way. Um, and so, um, you know, as we thought about expanding the... Um, vision for Harry's to multiple brands, you know, we've thought a lot about, well, what does that mean? And what should kind of the common thread be that drives these brands? And I think it comes down to this idea of creating products and experiences that just simply make people's lives better, um, things that they like more. And, um, and I think that that's, um, something that, um, I want to kind of evangelize everywhere, but I think I would have certainly loved to have had that conversation with myself a few years ago because um, I think at times running a company, you can be intrigued with other ideas that may not be the most customer-centric. And I feel like when we always bring it back to the customers, when we make our best decisions. Got it. And, you know, there was um, a really interesting talking about customers. I think it was Steve Jobs that said that in many instances, the customer doesn't really know what they want. Yeah. So I guess I guess from from your perspective, when you're thinking about customers, are you waiting for them to tell you what they want, or how do you figure out what they need? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I know we talk a lot about the idea of the you know Henry Ford saying that you know if I just listened to my customers, they would have asked for a faster horse. Um, and obviously he created cars, which <laughs> completely yeah. changed the dynamic in the world. And so um, you know, I think that it's a mix. I think you've got to understand what, who your customer is and what they want from you. And then I think you've got to have some vision on how you can create experiences that you just know are going to delight them. And I think it's that subjectivity and vision that, you know, is exciting. Um, and, um, you know, I think I still feel like Harry's is a brand that I should love to use. And when I see things that our team does, I'm like, oh man, I want that. Like, that's when I feel like I know that, you know, we're doing something that's going to be highly resonant. Um, and, um, and I think when I'm like, huh, I'm not, you know, man, maybe it's good for the business or, oh, I saw these other people do it successfully, but I'm not sure I'd want it. Like, that's a good gut check moment um, for me as a Harry's customer. 
Um, and so I, I think in building a brand, there's um, a real kind of tension that exists between, you know, understanding what your people want and delivering them that and having a vision for how to delight them further. And I think it's in the intersection of those things where amazing things happen. And, and you know, with someone like Steve Jobs, who's such an amazing visionary, I'd probably argue that he knew his customer pretty well intuitively and that he had an amazing vision for what he could do for them. Um, and I think that you know, that's something obviously we would aspire to do here, obviously not with as much um, you know, amazing purpose and vision as, as he had, but um, something well, that we really strive for. Definitely a lot of impact, uh, Jeff, that you've created on on the shaving and you know on the eyewear and, and wherever you go, I'm sure that you're going to continue to drive that success. So Jeff, thank you so much. And before we actually wrap it up, is there... Uh, for the people that are listening, what what is the best way for them to to reach out and say hi? Yeah, they so if they so a few ways that they can reach out. Um, if they've got great ideas that they want to share with us and want to potentially partner on your business, they can email us at labs at harrys.com. If they just want to talk to someone at Harry's, um, I think help at harrys.com um, is great. And then obviously I'm on Twitter and um, amazing. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.